Good morning. The next case is NRA JM and NM, and we will hear from the appellant. Good morning, Chief Justice Newby and members of the court. May it please the court. My name is Michelle Formidival Lynch, and I represent the child on behalf of the guardian ad litem today. We are appellants along with the Catawba County Department of Social Services, represented by Lauren Vaughn. Ms. Vaughn and I will be dividing our time for argument, reserving five minutes for rebuttal. This appeal concerns a permanency planning hearing where the judge ceased reunification between the child, children and parents. The Court of Appeals reversed that ruling and we petitioned this court because the Court of Appeals made five fundamental legal errors in its ruling. First, the Court of Appeals disregarded the adjudication order's findings as to Nellie's abuse, even though that order was not appealed and therefore is bonding. Secondly, the Court of Appeals failed to recognize that the appellate court cannot rule on issues that were not presented to nor ruled upon by the trial court. Third, an appellate court is not a fact-finding court, yet the Court of Appeals made findings of fact that were based on assumptions, not evidence at the hearing or in the record. The Court of Appeals did not follow established law that parents must acknowledge and explain the conditions that led to their child being removed from their custody in order to remediate those conditions. And finally, the Court of Appeals did not conduct the proper standard of review for a dispositional order, reversing the trial judge when the parents did not show an abuse of discretion by the judge. The facts in this case show that in August 2018, the six-week-old child Nellie was brought to the emergency room. Tests showed that she had bleeding on both sides of her brain, multi-layer retinal hemorrhages in both eyes, described as too many to count, and two posterior rib fractures on her left side. The doctors treating Nellie stated that each of these alone may be suspect of child abuse, but all those together made this a, a circumstance that was highly specific for child abuse. And the age of her injuries indicated there were two distinct incidents. Based on this medical evidence, the trial court adjudicated her abused and she and her two-year-old brother neglected. The court concluded the parents were responsible as Nellie was in her, their care when she sustained those injuries and the injuries were not caused by any other persons or caretakers. The court noted at that hearing that it could have ceased reunification at that time due to aggravating circumstances and it made it clear to the parents that the court needed an explanation for Nellie's injuries if they wanted to reunite with their child. The adjudication was not appealed by either parent, therefore it is bonding. Under the doctrine of collateral estoppel, it may not be attacked in an appeal of a later order. Parties may not retry fully litigated issues that were fully determined in a prior determination that was necessary. Despite this fact, at the permanency planning being appealed, and despite the facts the parents did not contest or present any evidence as to the DSS investigation 
or questioning of witnesses prior to the adjudication. The Court of Appeals made findings in their opinion that there was not a full investigation by DSS and the mother's two older children had not been interviewed. Therefore, it stated, DSS could not have diligently investigated all potential causes of Nellie's injuries. The Court of Appeals stated this five times in their opinion. These statements were findings and indicated that it could not have been established that Nellie was abused and her parents were responsible. This is in direct conflict with the findings and conclusions in the adjudication order. In its ruling on the father's constitutional argument, the Court of, Appeal, Court of Appeals stated, the fact that Nellie suffered injuries does not prove respondents harmed her, were neglectful, or acted inconsistently with their constitutionally protected status. Again, this statement goes against the findings and conclusions in the adjudication. As for the constitutional issue, the Court of Appeals again considered an argument on appeal that had not been presented to the trial court. Both Guardian and Lottom and DSS brought this to the attention of the Court of Appeals in our briefs, which regarded, disregarded that argument altogether. It was not mentioned in the opinion. The ruling of the Court of Appeals goes against recent precedent set by this court in NRAJN that a constitutional issue is not preserved for appellate review if it is not presented or ruled upon by the trial court. The father tries to distinguish this case stating he did not have notice, but the father did have notice of the permanency planning hearing. Um, also, while DSS and Guardian ad litem did not recommend totally removing reunification from the permanent plan, the trial judge uh, does not have to follow the recommendations of DSS or Guardian ad litem. And in this case, when the evidence was presented, the judge made his decision that he was going to cease reunification. So, so on this point, then, is your position that at every permanency planning hearing, a parent would have to raise a constitutional objection to preserve it? Yes. Under JN and other cases in this area, that is... E even if removing reunification is actually not being discussed or not part of the review in that particular permanency planning hearing? Well, most of the case law says it's really an issue only when custody is being changing. But the father here uh, believes that it is a constitutional issue about their protected status if reunification is being removed. But most of the cases in this area, it is a case where reunification is removed, but custody is granted in that same hearing. Well, let me ask you about um, the, the it, in, in the court's decision to eliminate, the trial court's decision to eliminate reunification, um, is, it, is it your position that the, fail, the parent's failure to explain um, or, t or take or, or describe or one, one or the other one to say, yes, I'm the person who injured this infant, that, that, that by that failure is a failure to comply with their case plan? Yes, 
And, and did the case plan specifically say that, that, they have to, that one of them has to admit causing the injuries? Well, I believe the judge pointed out that at the adjudication hearing, he discussed that with the parents. But, but that wouldn't, if, if you're saying that they failed to comply with the case plan because one or the other one didn't incriminate themselves and say, yes, I, I injured this infant, doesn't, sh shouldn't the parents be on notice? Shouldn't the case plan say that that's what they have to do? Well, that's what all, all the, the precedent that we have in these cases, I mean, even if it's not a case of abuse, uh, in every case, a parent has to have an explanation because if, if you don't know the conditions that led to the child being removed or what happened, you can't remediate those conditions. So that is a requirement in every case. Well, I, I think one factor that seems to distinguish this case from some of the others is, at least um, from the record, that um, not in the findings of fact, but in the materials in the record, at various points, not under oath, but in, in their interactions with um, uh, other um, DSS individuals or, or um, other service providers that they interacted with, that both parents blamed the other. They said, I, it must have been the other parent because I know I didn't do it. The mother said she didn't do it, but she would never say the father did it. The father said he didn't do it, and he didn't think the mother did it. So they would not, they boasted they didn't do it, but they wouldn't really acknowledge that the other did it. In fact, the mother, uh, at the adjudication, I think you may have been closer to getting an answer in this case from what was said at the permanency planning. She says some things there that implicated the father, but when asked at the permanency planning hearing, she said she could not speculate as to what he did. Um, she didn't know if he did it, and well, she didn't think he was a danger anymore. If they were to regain custody, she would allow him to have the children unsupervised. So, so I'm looking at um, record page 128, and um, the, in the summary and conclusions of um, a psychological evaluation, um, the, 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 it says, finally, regarding the injuries to the minor child, um, respondent father said that respondent mother had to have caused the injuries because she was the one with the child while well, I'm using the child and mm -hmm. but she she was the one with the child when he was in the home sleeping regarding the healing rib fractures that were identified respondent father also blamed respondent mother stating that she was the only one who would have interacted with the child at the time those injuries occurred as well right and then similarly on, on record page 135 um, The mother essentially says the same thing about the, about the father. And so I guess my question is, um, isn't that evidence that, that demonstrates they are saying to the extent what they know went on? If, if they weren't present when the child was injured, how else can they? If if they know that it has to be them or the other parent and they know that they didn't do it, then they should know the other parent did it. But in this case, they would not go that far. Um, you know, it is, the, the judge has to follow, follow the law, but it is a matter of judicial discretion. Um, and whatever explanation they gave, the judge didn't feel that it was, they were any closer to getting the truth than they had been at the adjudication. There was just no explanation 
Uh, and I think the, the stories had changed somewhat because at the time of this hearing, uh, the father said he didn't think the mother did it, whereas in one of those evaluations, um, he, he indicated she not have. Well, as for the mother particularly, didn't she go so far as to say that she acknowledged that there were non-accidental uh, means that were involved in terms of the child's uh, injury? Yes, Justice Morgan, she did acknowledge that at the permanency planning hearing, and the judge stated that was the first time she had acknowledged that, but she did not explain those injuries and um, did not take responsibility for them. The parents never stated they did anything wrong. They never stated that they failed to protect their child. They basically could not explain those injuries. Well, while she didn't uh, admit any culpability, in going so far as to acknowledge that there were non-accidental means that caused the injury, and then saying as well, because she wasn't present when the injuries occurred, she wasn't gonna go so far as to say that the father himself did it because she wasn't there and just didn't know. Why would she have to, in the view of the GAL and the county can speak for itself, go so far as to say absolutely it had to be the father if in fact she didn't know absolutely? She could. She stated she couldn't speculate that she didn't know how the child was injured, but she would not go as far to say that the father did it. And even if she acknowledged that the, act, the injury was caused by abuse, that the father was responsible for it, that was what she meant. Uh, she never, she said if he was a danger then, he's not a danger now. It just seems like she kind of all, when all around this issue, she would never directly state that yes, he injured my child and I'll do everything possible to keep this child safe in the future. Well, and in doing so, if following up on uh, Justice Earl's question concerning the case plan, did the mother not comply with the case plan in terms of having the father to be removed from the home and as a result saying the father is no longer a risk because he is now out of the home, and as a result, that was compliance with that element of the case plan. She did comply with it at that point, but in this hearing, she stated that she would let the, the father have them unsupervised without her. And in our view, that's more dangerous than if he was in the home, because at least she was there. She stated that, you know, she had no, she didn't think he was a danger. If they regained custody, he, he hoped that they would share it and he would have his time and she would have her time. And I'm gonna surrender my time for my colleague. Thank you. Good morning, Chief Justice Newby and members of the court. My name is Lauren Vaughn and I represent the Catawba County Department of Social Services. So I speak to you today from the perspective of the local Department of Social Services where I've practiced for 30 years. And I can tell you what you may already have gathered that these cases involving very serious injuries and even death of these young children are not unusual. And they are the most difficult cases that we deal with. And this case is so important because what the Court of Appeals did is such a departure from its established case law and the case law of this court 
that it has already created a degree of confusion in our court about how we are to address this, these types of cases. And it's exposing children to danger because it sets up a dangerous precedent wherein all parents really need to do is not point the feet, not uh, ever say who did it and not identify the other and act cooperatively when they're being observed and check boxes on a case plan and children can be returned to parents who have never actually addressed the reason and the serious nature of the non-accidental injuries that have, that have occurred. Um, I'll start out, although it wasn't my original plan, by addressing some of the things that have come up already. Um, with regard to whether or not the parents had notice of the constitutional issue, um, we believe that they always have notice at a permanency planning hearing that it is within the discretion of the trial court to cease reunification efforts and to change custody. That's under General Statute 7B906.1. So regardless of the recommendations of the Department of Social Services or the guardian ad litem in their court reports, it is always within the trial court's discretion to do what the court did in this case and make its own plan. And so they did have um, notice of that. Um, Are you saying that's automatic, that uh, just by virtue of the occurrence of the hearing, that therefore the constitutional standing of the parent is automatically at issue and as a result doesn't need to be preserved for appellate review? No, I'm saying that they're on notice that if they wish to raise a constitutional issue that they should because the custody of their children and a change in that custody is always at issue. And in addition, in this case, um, the court, when it made its decision, even if that decision had been a surprise, the way this hearing took place was that the court said, okay, I am removing reunification today. Now I'm going to give you attorneys a break to go back and, and think about and come up with any other arguments you wish to present. And that provided the, the uh, appellees with additional notice to that if he's going to remove reunification, we certainly want to preserve this issue. They had that additional opportunity to do so and did not do so. Um, with regard to your question, Justice Earls, about um, each of the parents acknowledging or pointing to the other, I'll point out that the psychological evaluation you referenced is the evaluation that was more or less found to be invalid because the father's answers on that were deemed to be deceptive and he was attempting to place himself in an overly favorable light. If you look at the second evaluation that he was asked to do, he was not pointing the, the finger particularly at the mother at that evaluation. He was instead still trying to explain away the injuries. He said in that, in that evaluation, that he did not believe that anything malicious had happened, that there were conflicting medical opinions and conflicting timelines. So if he had, if he pointed the finger at her in the first evaluation, he must have changed his mind by the second. And by the time that we had the permanency planning hearing at issue in this case, the father testified that he believed this child injured herself from a bowel movement, that she caused her own brain damage, fractured ribs, um, and retinal hemorrhaging. So that does not show any um, recognition on his part of the non-accidental nature of these injuries or the responsibility, the joint and individual responsibility, which the Court of Appeals has established um, in YYET and a number of other cases, that both parents can be deemed to be responsible for the injuries because 
one of them either committed the, the acts and the other one failed to prevent um, the harm to the child. Um, and with regard to the mother, yes, in the hearing, she was able to utter the word non-accidental. She had heard it a lot and she acknowledged on the stand that the injuries were non-accidental. But what, to what degree did she take any responsibility that she might need to have changed something? If we look back at the history of this case, the findings of fact at the adjudication were that this mother had already noticed bruising to her less than six week old child before these, the big injuries came to light. She had seen that bruising. She had seen the respondent father handle that child roughly at, to the point that she um, had cautioned him to treat the child more gently and yet she continued to leave her children in his care. There was testimony and findings about her going to the grocery and she would now tell us that she wasn't in the room. She had left that child in his care without supervision on the day of the injuries. Um, at no point in this case has she ever acknowledged any responsibility of, oh, I failed to protect my child, which um, in YYET, the Court of Appeals had talked about how um, failure to protect also makes her jointly and individually responsible for the injuries if she did not, in fact, inflict them. Um, and in a case from this court, in DWP, uh, this court recognized we had a mother in that case who um, acknowledged some level of responsibility, and yet this court affirmed the termination of her parental rights. In that case, she said, I didn't do the commit these injuries, but I recognize that I am the mother's child and I am ultimately responsible as this child's caretaker. Those were her statements. And this court found that that wasn't enough because she still did not recognize the cause of her child's injuries and could not come up with an explanation. So I would contend that the mother being able to sit on the stand and say these injuries were non-accidental is not quite enough. It's not nearly enough. She has not even gone as far as the mother in DWP to say, at least I'm the child's mother and I had some responsibility in this. So, so let me just ask you this. Assuming hypothetically that she didn't herself witness the injuries, if she were to say, not only I am responsible because I'm the child's mother and it is up to me to protect this child, but if she also said, as you seem to suggest she needed to, and I know that the father injured the child, isn't the natural next question, how do you know that? I mean, if you didn't see it, how can she say anything more than what she has said if she didn't personally witness it? How because can she say anything more than, I know I didn't do it, and I know the child was, in my, was my responsibility? How can she say any more? I think that she can say after she listened to days of expert medical testimony who, which would have educated her that this was an intentional injury and then know that this child was in the care of her and the father, then she could at least say this was an intentional injury and I didn't cause it so he must have. She could at least say I need to do something different going forward. She, she would not, in this case, as my co-counsel pointed out, she did, she, when I asked her at the trial, well, what is your plan if you get your children back? Her answer was, oh, I plan for us to share joint custody. They'll go back and forth between our homes. 
So there was no acknowledgement even then of any need to protect her child from what she should have it by that point in the case understood was an intentional egregious um, act that had occurred against her child. Um, as I said, this, uh, this court has um, found in cases such as DWP and AW that the explanation of a parent is key and not only must they um, acknowledge that an injury occurred but they need to pinpoint an explanation for that injury um, and they need to show some ability to protect the children in the future and we do not believe that that happened in a situation where the mother continues to plan to expose her child to the unsupervised contact with the father and the father continued at the date of this hearing to uh, to continue to try to explain away those injuries so if there aren't further questions i'll reserve the remaining time for rebuttal thank you counsel from the appellant from the appellee may it please the court my name is lee gillum i'm with the office of the parent defender and i represent the respondent father in this case as has already been stated this case is up on uh, discretionary review from the court of appeals and we're asking you to affirm the court of appeals decision or um, decide that discretionary review was improvidently granted in this case because the Court of Appeals made a well-reasoned decision in this case. And in its decision, read the opinion, it carefully balanced the interests of the children with the rights of the parents. And its ultimate holding was that reunification may not be eliminated from the permanent plan when the parents have complied with the case plan and they appropriately nurture their children during supervised visits, even if neither parent has admitted to causing the child's pre-removal injuries. Uh, there are three points of law that I think we can take out of the Court of Appeals opinion. And I, I disagree um, strongly with um, counsel's argument that this is a dangerous precedent because the Court of Appeals is not saying return these children to their parents' home close the case, wipe out um, any further monitoring. The Court of Appeals simply says, no, when these things are present, when the parents have complied with the case plan and they are appropriately nurturing their children during the visits, you can't take reunification out of the, out of the plan. It's not, it's not the best interest of the children or fair to the parents. So there are three points of law I think we can distill from the opinion. And the first one is, that when parents are no longer living together and no longer have an intimate relationship, each parent's circumstance has to be evaluated separately in the decision to leave reunification in the permanent plan. And I mean, that's, that's a very reasonable approach to take because most of the time what we, what we see in these cases is the parents are getting back together, they're continuing their, their intimate relationship and they don't, they don't separate. And, in uh, YYAT, which is um, um, cited and discussed a lot, um, and in AW, the parents, um, there's, there's no evidence that the parents separated in, in YYAT, at least in the opinion, and in AW, um, the parents continued their romantic relationship and had no intention of separating. 
In that case, it is perfectly appropriate, I would concede, to lump the parents together and say, parents in the same house, and returning the child to one parent is returning the child to the other parent, and so therefore, um, the parent who's responsible for the injuries is, is caring for the child again. That's not what happened in this case. Parents have separated, established separate residences, and there was no evidence at all on the record that they were still in an intimate relationship. Counsel, I'm looking at the findings of fact that were entered by the trial court. Finding number 21 has a trial court saying in part that the mother stated that she acknowledges that her child suffered non-accidental injury. Then in finding number 23, the trial court says neither parent has acknowledged responsibilities for these non-accidental abusive injuries to Nellie. Mm -hmm. How should we regard that seeming uh, inconsistency? I don't think that's the dispositive question here because the parents did establish separate residences and as far as the record shows, they ended their intimate relationship. So when that happens, the court could have discerned which one it thought was most at fault because that's what trial courts assess witness credibility, right? And so when the two people come and say, both of them say, I didn't do it, then the trial court's job is to say, well, I'm going to figure out who did do it because I'm going to figure out which one of you is telling the, the truth and which one isn't because the trial court, as this court has said many times, can see the demeanor, the tone, hear the tone, and the trial court's job is to decide. I mean, that's probably the, the most important job the trial court judges in a bench, does in a bench trial is decide who's telling the truth. But in terms of looking at those seemingly inc or arguably inconsistent uh, findings of fact and looking at what this court must, which is whether or not the findings of fact support the conclusions of law, uh, is it your contention that these seeming inconsistent facts here do support the conclusions of law ultimately? I think those, those facts are not dispositive on the case. I think the other, the other findings are dispositive, and that's one of those is that the parents have, have separated and are no longer together. So should we look at the ones that you want us to emphasize, if I'm hearing you correctly, uh, look at those as being more persuasive in terms of what the trial court did than the ones that are the inconsistent facts here as found? Yes, I think so. And the, the Court of Appeals said, you know, this, that's the, I gave you my first point of law that the parents are separated. That's an important thing. And then the second point of law that the Court of Appeals opinion gives us is that when a parent is fully engaged in all reunification tasks, and I don't think that, that anybody disputed that. I don't think anyone disputed that the parents were fully engaged in, in their reunification task. You know, substance abuse, um, psychological evaluation, domestic violence treatment, um, employment, housing. I don't think anyone disputes that the parents were fully compliant with those at the time of the of the hearing, the cease reunification hearing. And the Court of Appeals said, when the parent is fully engaged in all that, and, and this is an important point too, they have a positive bond and relationship with their parents, and, and this is a super important point here, the department itself, the Department of Social Services, the caseworker who was spending time with these parents, 
the caseworker and the supervisor said, keep reunification as the permanent plan. And, you know, this is, again is very different from the, um, the cases that were cited in the briefs so we discussed some of an argument. Like in YYET and DWP and AW, the department was um, petitioning to terminate parental rights. They were saying that the best interest of these kids is to terminate these parents' parental rights. In this case, completely different, the caseworker, the supervisor said, and even um, counsel admitted on page 32 of the transcript, at this point, we're still recommending a plan of reunification. And when those three things are true, compliance with the case plan, relationship with the kids, and a recommendation of the department that reunification stay in the plan, it is an abuse of discretion for the trial court to take it out. And that's the, that's the upshot of, of what they're, they're saying. What's your response to the counsel for both the GAL and the county that there was the concern in terms of why you say that the parents weren't reconciling their own personal relationship that the mother was willing to allow the father to have visitation despite the fact that she had acknowledged that there were non-accidental means for the injury because she had not said that she was going to keep the child from the father. Well, the, when the social worker wrote her, her report and, and made her recommendation, she acknowledged that we haven't figured out exactly who did this. Neither parent's admitted it. Neither parent has put the finger on the, on the other person. That, that was in the report. But when the, the caseworker weighed everything out and said, okay, we've got this failure to admit or failure to point a finger, we've got that, and we've got that weighed against the engagement or reunification task and the positive bond and relationship with the parents and children. She said, you know, I've got to recommend reunification in this case. This is not a case where reunification needs to be um, taken out of the plan. And, um, and I think that was, that was um, an important point when the Court of Appeals made their um, decision reversing in this case. So the fact that the mother in responding again to the other side, mm -hmm. the mother was not going to do anything beyond just allowing the father to have unfettered visitation with the child if the child was there for visitation should not enter this court's contemplation in terms of how far the mother went in terms of acknowledging non-accidental means of injury and further protection of the child in the future. Well, certainly the trial court could have come to the conclusion, you know, this parent did it and this parent didn't do it. So I'm given custody to the parent that I don't think injured the child and the other parent is never allowed to be around the child unsupervised. That's certainly an option that would have been before the court that didn't involve kind of um, arm twisting to get someone to either admit or turn into a witness against the other parent. Because both parents said, I didn't see what happened. So um, to, to be able to you know, come in and, and testify under oath and say, you know, he did it or she did it, I don't think um, either parent was able to do that because they both said, 
I didn't see what happened. And, and the Court of Appeals did note that in their opinion. They said, you know, not every parent can keep eyes on a child 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because at some point you have to go buy groceries, at some point you have to sleep, at some point you have to go to work. And so it's, it's not reasonable to expect that just because there's two parents in the house and one hurts the child, it's not reasonable to expect the other parent most definitely to have, have seen what happened and be able to, to testify to it. Okay. Last thing from me. Oh, sure. <laughs> in, in, in terms of helping this court to appreciate your position, mm -hmm. if we were to find in your favor, mm -hmm. how should we craft an opinion that addresses the very common aspect of some of these kinds of cases wherein there are non-accidental injuries. Mm -hmm. Parents say, it wasn't me mm -hmm. that caused them, and I'm not gonna go so far as to say it's the other parent, either for protectionism or other reasons. Mm -hmm. How do we address this matter for trial courts in the future in terms of saying it's enough for a parent to say non-accidental means, mm -hmm. wasn't me, I'm not gonna say it was the other parent either, and allow reunification to still be the plan. What should we say in an opinion like that? I think you have to look at the facts broadly like the Court of Appeals did. And the Court of Appeals said, we're not gonna stay focused. And I think uh, uh, the department really summarized what this case is about in their, their brief, is on page 27, that the Court of Appeals focused on the parents' compliance with their case plans and observations of them during supervised visitation rather than on the issue that led to the initial adjudication and caused the children into foster care. And I think the Court of Appeals, they, that is what they did, and I think that was the right thing to do in this case. Instead of just narrowly looking at what brought the kids into foster care and whether anybody has admitted or pointed the finger, they looked more broadly at their um, the parents' compliance and engagement in the case plan, and, and this is important, the nurture for these children at visits in deciding um, and recommending that, or the, the, at least the department, <coughs> the Court of Appeals agree with the department, you can't take reunification out of the plan when these are the facts of the case. And, you know, I, I can <laughs> read, this is what the, um, the person that, the department chose to supervise visits between the, the parents and children and chose to care for the children. Um, when this, uh, the foster mom was asked about the, uh, the visits, and, and this is so unusual. I mean, I think you've, you've seen enough of these kind of cases to know how unusual this is to hear this from a, from a foster parent. Um, it's always positive. The visits are always positive. Dad shows up when he's supposed to and brings treats for the kids. They play together. He takes care of them. He changes diapers. He gives baths. They know in the evening visits, the kids will go to bed at the end of the visit, hugs, kisses, tucks them in, reads them books. He comes over, and it's their dad. The kids get very, are very excited when Dad comes over. John can understand ahead of time that Daddy's coming over, and he gets excited. Daddy's coming. Daddy's coming. And as soon as Nellie realizes there's someone coming over, she is right at the door, literally jumping up and down. They're excited to see their dad. And you know, even the, uh, as I said, this, the, uh, the caseworker, in, in her report on page 197, she said, um, 
The father has been very appropriate during his visits with the children. He displays proper parenting techniques and knowledge. He is attentive to each child's needs and shows affection to each child. And the parents have a positive and loving bond. Can I just ask you then how you respond? I think the argument on the other side would be that, um, and that this is just jumping through the hoops and that despite the parents' ability to behave properly when supervised, their inability to account for the very serious injuries means that they cannot protect the children in the future. Right, and that's a very good question. <laughs> but I, I will point out again that the caseworker, the department's caseworker and her supervisor looked at all these facts and said, we need to keep reunification of the plan here. So that, that, I don't think that argument carries much weight. And even the guardian ad litem said, we'll keep it in the plan, but demote it to secondary. And when the, when the judge was kind of advising counsel, when he sent counsel out for this recess, he said, reunification is off the table. I don't know who hurt this child. Reunification is off the table. And he also said, termination of parental rights is off the table, too, because of this warm and loving bond that these children have with their parents. And, you know, um, for, for reasons that I, I can't quite understand, the judge makes this pronouncement, says termination is off the table, reunification is off the table, so that means we have to find a custodian or a guardian that can, you know, care for the children uh, full-time, but also allow some contact with the parents. And so he sends the, the, uh, the attorneys out to talk about what this means, and then um, when the written order comes out, lo and behold, adoption is the primary permanent plan. Even though the judge himself acknowledged it is not in these children's best interest to terminate parental rights in this case. And, and so if I understand your argument earlier, what you're saying is that faced with these circumstances, um, it was the duty and responsibility of the court to determine who the evidence showed that legally it was the responsibility of the court to decide who the evidence showed was actually caused the injuries and protect the child from that parent? I, I think that's part of it. And I think the other piece is um, the, the statutory changes in the last three or four years say that reunification has to be in the plan unless you make these findings about um, um, you know, futility or uh, clearly um, unlikely to succeed. But there's also a provision in the statute now that reunification can take out of the, be taken out of the plan when another permanent plan like guardianship or custody is, um, is completed. So the, the trial court could have gone back and said, okay, I'm putting as, you know, the, the guardian ad litem recommended, I'll leave reunification in the plan, I'll demote it to secondary, we're going to really work on trying to find a family placement or a guardian or a custodian or something for these kids. I'll leave reunification as a secondary plan, which incidentally cannot be appealed, right? You leave it as a secondary plan. You can't appeal that. You don't have um, like endless litigation in the appellate courts over it. We can move to permanence and then we can find a guardian, put a guardian in place and then um, we can eliminate reunification from the plan without ever finding fault on the part of the parent. And the, um, the Court of Appeals, the last um, point of law that I'm, I'm 
offering you from the Court of Appeals of Opinion is it is unfair to parents and children to condition a plan of reunification solely on a parent's failure to acknowledge guilt. And I've included in my brief a case from Michigan, which I hope is persuasive authority that says um, compelling that kind of admission from a parent is really inconsistent with, um, with who we are as, as a people. It's inconsistent with uh, the Constitution to do that. And, it's, it's, and, and the reason for that is because it's unfair to the parents and, and the children to, to condition it solely on that. And I think this case is about, it was solely on that because you had parents separated, engagement with the case plan, nurturing at visits, and the department's recommendation that it stay in, that all that weighed together, and the only thing on the other side of the scale was nobody has admitted or pointed a finger at somebody for, for these injuries. And uh, if no one has a question, I'll, I'll defer to my co-counsel to, um, to carry on with his argument. morning. Uh, may it please the court, my name is David Perez. I'm from the Davidson County Bar, uh, and I was appointed to represent the uh, aptly mother, uh, Ricky Smith, in this matter. Uh, I was going to address just a little bit about her progress uh, on the, uh, in, under case plan and her progress in the case uh, overall. Uh, and just dealing with uh, a few things at the uh, by the excuse me by the adjudication, uh, she had uh, the record shows she'd already completed a, a psychological evaluation. She was uh, she had shown increased insight into the uh, injuries caused to Nellie uh, by that time. Uh, she was also in substance abuse treatment by the time of the adjudication disposition hearing, uh, and that was ended in July 2019. Uh, she was uh, also in substance abuse uh, treatment at uh, Addiction Recovery Medical Services, ARMS. She had completed a parenting-type class, I believe, life skills. She had separated from Mr. McDuffie by the time of adjudication. I'm not sure exactly when prior to that, but she had separated by then, and she remained separated from him throughout the, uh, through the time that the court relieved, uh, uh, reunification took that away. She was also employed, and she remained employed at the same place, Kickback Jacks, uh, the entire time. Uh, by the, uh, there was a, uh, in that, the, the order there was entered in 10, uh, 10-25-19, uh, the adjudication order. Then the uh, permanency planning hearing, which was, there was only two in this case, I believe. By the first one, which occurred in October 2019, she completed a, a comprehensive clinical assessment. She completed the life skills program I already mentioned. She completed, she was then doing another parenting class, Triple P. She had uh, continued in the armed substance abuse treatment. She had tested negative on all 13 drug screens by that time. Uh, by the end of the case, she had tested negative on all 
18 drug screen. But at this point, I believe it was 13. She continued employed. She continued uh, separated from Mr. McDuffie. Now, it's interesting, the court at this permanency planning hearing, which I would contend the, the same standard would apply at both of these. They're both permanency planning hearings. At that permanency planning hearing, the court uh, specifically found in one of the findings that the barriers to a primary plan of reunification include engaging in case plans, demonstrating insight, and providing explanation for Nellie's interest. So there was a multi-part uh, expectation there by the court. We want to see case plan compliance. We want to see demonstrating insight. And we'd like a further explanation as to the child's injuries. And that occurred uh, in the permanency planning hearing on 10-21-19. That was the hearing date, I believe. Uh, then by a few months later, February 12, 2020, at that point, the court wasn't concerned with case plan compliance, wasn't concerned with insight, was only concerned with uh, what caused the entries or a fuller explanation of that. Even though the mother continued to make excellent progress, uh, by the last, the hearing where reunification was removed, she completed a psychological evaluation with uh, Dr. Capitelli at Crossroads, attended all sessions, uh, and was in compliance with that. Uh, she, the doctor did not express any concerns. She wanted her continuing substance abuse treatment. Uh, she was participating in group and individual therapy. She tested negative, as I mentioned earlier, on all 18 drug screens. She'd seen a short film, which apparently has to do with with uh, injured children per period of purple crying. She had written a, an essay, a report, that indicated she gained insight from that uh, as DSS felt. Uh, she completed the Triple P parenting. She was also in outpatient therapy with Dr. James Watchmouth, uh, and she completed 10 sessions with him. I don't see that she missed any. She was openly participating in therapy uh, she was developed an increased, as he mentioned, uh, increased awareness of both the positive and negative impact that her childhood trauma had on her relationships. And the doctor, Watchmouth, opined that she presented no risk to her older daughters or to John or Nellie. Uh, she was still employed, uh, and, he, and he said there appeared to be no observable or reported barriers to unsupervised or overnight visits. She was still employed at Kickback Jacks, and she was still living separate from Dr. Uh, Mr. McDuffie. Uh, and as my co-counsel mentioned a little bit about the foster parent, that was very unusual. She testified at that hearing how, uh, basically how great a mother my client is to her children, uh, that she's totally appropriate, wipes their runny noses, plays with them, carries on uh, games that she played with her older children to carry on a family tradition. Uh, the children are very excited. They're jumping up and down, mommy and daddy are here. Uh, Miss Dowd uh, saw absolutely no safety concerns. I believe she was asked, even if the contact was unsupervised, no, she didn't see any safety concerns. She was attentive, the mother, to all the needs of the uh, children. And then the social worker, I don't believe, testified. It was amazing. In this hearing, nobody for DSS testified, I don't believe. 
there were reports, but nobody testified. There was a social worker, uh, Lisa Suriak, Surisak, who had a court report. Her court report was consistent with Ms. Dowd's testimony that the mother was appropriate, or I should say the parents were appropriate, but the mother being one. Uh, they were, uh, gave snacks, toys, diapers, clothing to the children. They are active and engaged. They observed a loving and positive bond with the children that had been observed. The parents worked well with the foster parents. They did well co-parenting or shared parenting. Uh, and DSS had observed no concerns nor heard of any concerns from the foster parents. So then, of course, DSS, both agencies, the, the guardian ad litem and the DSS, uh, included, I believe, recommendations that reunification remain the permanent plan or part of the permanent plan. It was the court that decided that a, a different analysis from the earlier permanency planning hearing would occur at this one. And I'm not sure why that is, but it, it like I said, it, it identified three things there. It identified one thing here that they had not acknowledged <clears throat> you know, uh, someone had not said I did it or he did it. And I would point out, uh, uh, again, I think I put it in my brief, but just as a side, uh, 7B9062, dealing with permanency planning hearings, requires the court to make findings in, every, in, this, per, in this type of permanency planning hearing. It's required by statute that the court as a to, and it says specifically to demonstrate the degree of success or failure towards reunification, that whether the parent is making adequate progress within a reasonable period of time under the plan. So if the rule of this case is gonna be we don't look at the permanent plan, I mean we don't look at compliance with the plan, then how does that how does that jive with this statute that says you must look at reasonable progress under the plan and that that is pertinent to determining whether reunification is successful. It's like there's gonna be a different plan for cases, uh, a different process for cases in which uh, uh, injuries occur, unexplained injuries versus other permanency planning hearings. And I, I don't think the statute doesn't allow that. It requires that. And it also says, number two, this is subsection D, one and two, whether the parent is actively participating in or cooperating with the plan. Well, my client was actively participating, cooperating with the plan. And there was a question earlier, I believe, I'm not sure which justice asked, as uh, jumping through the hoops. Well, I mean, what, what does that mean? Because I'm, in the, I'm more in the trial court than the appellate court. And if I have a client in DSS court who is jumping, who's doing what they're supposed, if they're not doing what they're supposed to, they're not complying. And if they are, they're just jumping through the hoops. So what determines that? I mean, what are they to do? They're complying, they appear to Thank be you. sincere. Counsel, I believe your time's expired. Thank you. Thank you. Just to address some of the things brought up, 
in the parents' arguments. Uh, it was stated the Court of Appeals is not saying to return the child. Um, if you're going to rule that the case plan has been completed, uh, as the Court of Appeals seemed to state, what else would prevent reunification if, the, if there's no explanation required? The whole purpose of a case plan is for the parents to remediate the conditions that led to that child being removed. Um, if the parents can do that immediately, you may not even need a case plan. But in, in cases such as this, we would hope that the parents going through evaluations, uh, watching films, that they may, it may allow them to understand any mistakes that were made and remediate those conditions that led to their child's injuries. Um, as stated in the, the closing at the hearing, that's the threshold. You, going through all these classes really means nothing until you remediate and explain. Uh, yes, the Court of Appeals said that the report showed changed behavior. I read those reports. I did not see anywhere that anyone said that the parents had changed their behavior. The parents attended classes, they were evaluated, they watched films, they made reports, yes, and they visited their children and everything went fine, but they still had no explanation. Um, so yes, they did jump through the hoops, but until you can explain or take responsibility for what happened, correct the conditions that led to the child being abused, you've not met the requirements of the case plan. Uh, this issue was fully addressed in a 95-page opinion by the Court of Appeals, NRA MTKT, that came out last September. In that case, it was very similar. The mom claimed that she uh, completed everything in her case plan, but she could not explain the injuries. The Court of Appeals affirmed the trial court and the CISA reunification and the TPR because there was never a plausible explanation for the infant's injuries. Uh, the only thing about that case um, that is concerning is the mother relied on the Court of Appeals opinion in this case for her argument, and the Court of Appeals distinguished the two, but we would submit the things that we challenge today will show uh, that, that is how it was distinguished um, is not really valid in, in some of those cases. Also, in the, in the hearing, the Judge did not say that TPR was totally off the table. He just said for right now because he did recognize that there was a bond with these children. Sometimes there is no TPR, but they, they do go into guardianship or custody, and that's, that's what works. Excuse me, Counselor. I know this is very brief, but to that point, uh, since this was permanency planning, could the judge not also revisit um, visitation? Uh, it's, it's not a... Uh, it's right. not, yes. So it could even be uh, in, in that regard as well. Thank you yes, for the clarification. Yes, and I think he even increased visitation. Um, the thing we want you to remember is imagine yourself in this judge's position. He's following the law, but this is a matter of, matter of judicial discretion. We've all seen cases where children are put back in homes of foster parents, parents where everything, everything seemed fine but something happens to that child, and then who gets blamed? The judge gets blamed, or DSS gets blamed. 
This judge was sitting there and he knew someone injured this child and told the parents he needed an explanation on who almost killed your child and neither parent will admit that. We submit in this top circumstance, this judge made the right decision. There has been no, no showing that there is abuse of discretion in his ruling in this case. Therefore, we ask that you reverse the ruling of the Court of Appeals and affirm the order of the trial court. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you to everyone.